You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, church. My name is Hui and today I'm reading from Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in the ship of Andromitium, which was about to sail to, to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing from Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and said to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a temp- tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and was driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cowder, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being safe were at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took on a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldier, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be safe. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, 
Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it would give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food among some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay which a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessels aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much for uh, reading that. Uh, quick uh, preliminary update as well from my side. I, at the end of the week, will be uh, dropping my daughter to university. Uh, so I'm not going to be around for the next two weeks. Uh, so uh, that's just a heads up. But uh, when I get back, we uh, should do coffee. Speaking of traveling, I recently took a flight from Nagoya to Tokyo. And uh, I arrived at the baggage check-in counter and... Uh, being the master of Asian languages that I am. I couldn't quite read all the information about this flight, but uh, I could interpret the picture, which had a very dark cloud, heavy rain, and a lightning strike. And I thought to myself, we're in for trouble. I get onto this aircraft, and it was as hot as anything. The air conditioner was not working, and uh, I was just sweating profusely. I put my hand against the window. It was actually semi-burning, this plastic on this window. And I thought to myself, what else can go wrong? Well, at about 20,000 feet, the uh, Japanese public announcer representative came on the intercom, testing. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an important announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an urgent announcement. Please pay attention. We have a malfunction. Now, to the untrained ear, when you hear announcement, important, urgent, airplane malfunction, there's only one word that you are honing in on, and it's the word malfunction. And in these kind of situations, I always only have one question to ask. And the question is, is it the left engine or is it the right engine? Am I going to die left or am I going to die right? And as I was sitting there thinking about life after death, the Japanese public announcer representative then switched to fluent, high-speed, Shinkansen Japanese. And uh, being the master of Asian languages that I am, I didn't get all of it, but he was talking very fast, and I was sweating even more. The aircon wasn't working. I was sweating even more. I was getting more and more worried. And then fortunately, he switched back to uh, English, and he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have an urgent, important announcement. We have a malfunction with the air conditioner. 
It didn't stop me sweating. I just carried on perspiring. And then he carried on and he said, no, no, we just want to uh, apologize for this inconvenience. And I was like, there is no inconvenience. We don't mind the aircon not working. It's the engines that we are most important about. Just direct all the petrol to that thing. So there I was. But for a brief few moments of time, I did contemplate what it would be like going to my death, squashed in some tin can, out of control, high up in the sky. Now, I know we don't take passages on boats across the Mediterranean. Well, unless you're super rich and you have a yacht, you might. But the nearest we can come to is, what would it be like for flying, just assume there's atomically powered uh, aircraft for a moment, what would it be like flying 14 days in the sky with 276 other people, and for some reason, you, the only way you can land is to crash and to die? And that's your experience. And the worst thing is the air stewards then knock off. And then there's no refreshments. And you don't eat for 14 days. What would that possibly be like? Well, that is something of what is going on in this passage here. So this is the way I want to approach it today. Uh, the title today is Paul in the Sea of Troubles. Paul in the Sea of Troubles. Uh, the Sea of Troubles comes from Hamlet, by the way. Uh, he was facing uh, a sea of troubles. But Paul was literally facing a sea full of troubles. And uh, what I want to do is just go through the story, Paul's story. That's our first big point. And then I'd love us to look at this as a template, uh, what I've called the anatomy of a shipwreck, and see how this may apply to your life as well. So as we're going through the story, uh, be listening out for echoes that you may come across in your life or the lives of the people around us. And to help us uh, through, what I've chosen today is to give us 12 plot points as we uh, go through uh, this story. Twelve plot points of Paul. So let's begin with the first one. And the first plot point is this. It all begins innocently, an innocent beginning. And when it was decided, and I'm reading here from verse 1, and when it was decided, by the way, we've also got a, I've got you a map. Maybe we can throw up the map just so that you get an idea of some of the geography. Okay, bear that in mind as we're going along. When it was decided... Quick catch up for those of you who might be here for the first time. We've been tracking Paul. He's been going uh, through various court processes. He is uh, in this place called Caesarea. He's appealed to Caesar and to Rome he is going. So this whole journey is now driving forward to Rome where he has to appear before the emperor Nero. And he's been said by this king Agrippa uh, or Herod. And uh, so this is where we pick it up in verse 1 of 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So who's the we? Well, Luke is writing this. So FYI, Luke is on board here. We forget about Luke, but he's saying we. So he was there. We should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners. So Paul is not alone. There are other prisoners who are on this vessel as well, and they're all going to Rome. Now, in the ancient world, you don't want to be sent as a prison to Rome. It means one thing. You're going to the Circus Maximus to be thrown to the lions, pretty much. So these guys are on death row. Paul, he's appealing, so his future is in the balance. But these other characters are prisoners under Roman authority with a centurion. And they are now going to a certain death. You can imagine the mood on flight 737. Uh, to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So we know the centurion's first name. And embarking in a ship for Adriatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus. Now, again, if you've been tracking with us through Acts, Aristarchus is one of Paul's companions. When he gets to Rome and he writes the letter to the Colossians, 
from jail. He will talk about Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner. So for sure, we don't know if Luke was a prisoner. Maybe he was just coming along for the ride. But Aristarchus, for sure, is a prisoner with Paul. So sometimes you follow a leader and you yourself get yourself into trouble. So that's Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Verse 2, the next day we put out at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. It's not a great situation, having to go to stand before Nero, putting that aside for one moment. The story starts innocently enough. All great shipwrecks start innocently. Okay, plot point number two. Things start getting difficult. And uh, you can see that point, and then we can return to the slide as well so you can follow some of the geography. And putting out to sea from there, this is from Sidon. We sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds... We're against us. It's not great when winds are against you in the ancient world and all you've got is sails. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia, that's Paul's home territory, by the way. So he's now sailing past his home country, never to see it again. And Pamphylia, I wonder what was going through his mind when he sailed past Cilicia. We came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion Julius changed ships, and we found a ship of Alexandria, that's Egypt, sailing for Italy. That's where they want to go. They wanna, they're, getting, they're going to Rome. And put us on board. Again, he's saying us and we, so Luke is definitely there. We sailed slowly. So the winds have already been against them. They've had to sail in the lee of certain islands. You can see the, the lee of uh, Cyprus, so they have to take that way to be protected from the wind. We were slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow, so that's about the fourth reference to struggles with the wind. As the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed along the lee. Again, just to repeat the point of Crete off Salmone, coasting along it. That's not coasting, coasting, but hugging the coast along with it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens. Remember the name, Fair Havens, because uh, that was the last time they had safety in this story at Fair Havens. Some irony baked in there. You're up in the sky in your airplane and having taken off from the airport called Fair Havens. And how many times do you think back and go, if only we were at Fair Havens. Okay, so things start getting difficult. You can kind of feel the tension sort of building. Yeah, it's not the greatest time of the year to be sailing, which reminds me, from September onwards, it's kind of like, uh, you're out of the safe time to sail. They talk about a, a feast or a fast, which is about 5th of October in that particular year. Things are getting a bit more dangerous. We know we after the 5th of October. By early November, it was actually against the law to sail. It was so dangerous. So we're in October here, and things are a little dicey. You really shouldn't be out there in the Mediterranean if you don't know what you're doing. So things are getting a little nervy. Okay, plot point number three. Approaching danger meets overconfidence. This is the perception of danger is less than the confidence you have in yourself. When in reality, the danger in actuality is greater than whatever confidence you may have in yourself. So this is plot point number three. And uh, this is in verse... Uh, not sure. Anyway, after the last year word, uh, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, if anyone is awake out there, because even the fast 
was already over. So we're after 5th of October. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only of, and he lists two things, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also number two, of our lives. Things are in danger, and life is in danger. Things are in danger, and life is in danger. And it seems like, reading between the lines, they have a bit of an exco meeting. We don't quite know how the prisoner Paul gets into the exco meeting to decide the situation, but he does, which in and of itself is pretty amazing. The pilot is there, the guy driving the ship. The owner of the ship is there. The centurion is there, and Paul is there, and they have this little uh, meeting to decide what to do, and Paul gives them this advice. Paul has been sailing all over the Mediterranean. He's got kind of frequent flyer miles, and he knows a thing or two, and he's now giving advice to this, uh, this, these people who've imprisoned him. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor, Fair Havens, was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority, so there was a decision to be made, and the majority of this little committee, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. So there's a bit of dramatic irony being built into the way he's writing it here, and this danger is looming, but they are more confident than the danger. Plot point number four is the realm of chance and natural observation. Because carrying on from that sentence, after the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they're on the one side of uh, Crete. You can see there, Fair Havens. They are now taking a chance to go on the same island to go 40 miles. Look, they're not going to get to Italy, not this season. They've got to wait for winter to end and then go. So it's really, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a dumb gamble just to advance 40 miles, but to risk yourself just to get to the other side of the same island. So that's the, the sort of scenario. And they rely on chance. Well, there's a chance. There's a chance. I mean, do you want to be taking a chance with the Mediterranean in this, in this season? Uh, and then they go on and then they back their own natural ability and their own natural observation. Because in verse, uh, the next verse, it says, Now, when the south wind blew gently. Oh, this is, this is what we want. We've had a horrible wind all the time. But, guys, it's, the tide is turning. Well, metaphorically speaking. The wind is turning because we've got now a gentle, a favorable breeze blowing us onto the land. So we won't get blown out to sea. We'll get blown towards land, which is safe. Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, they pulled up the anchor, and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. So they're trusting chance, and they're trusting their own natural navigation skill, and then their reading of the conditions, the industry conditions. Okay, plot point number five. Things get out of control, which is a big way of saying panic. So it carries on, and it says, but... Don't you hate it when the Bible has a but? But soon a tempestuous wind, Greek typhonic wind, which is where we get the word typh typhoon from. This typhoon, which was so well known, it was called the Northwester, sorry, the Northeaster. So it's uh, bellowing down and it's going to blow them not towards Crete, but away from Crete, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. Oh dear, they realize that the danger is greater than their confidence. We gave way to it and were driven 
along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That's the lifeboat. The lifeboat was going to blow off. But in this terrible storm, they managed to secure it. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. A fancy nautical language for their base was strapping the boat together with ropes and things because it was kind of breaking apart, the, the, the main boat. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the, on the Sirtis, and those are just kind of like sandbars in the Mediterranean, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along since they were violently storm-tossed. The language is definitely ratching up a notch here. They began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. Things are getting out of control. And then the sixth plot point is rock bottom, which is also known as uh, total darkness. When another, sorry, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, so they're in total darkness now, and no small tempest lay on us all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So you are in an airplane flying, and there's no hope that you will make a safe landing. And it's elongated for about 14 days. This is the situation they found themselves in. Carries on in verse 21 and says, since they had been without food for a long time. So they hadn't even been eating. They hadn't even been eating for a long time. And they're now facing certain death. And the mood on the boat is, well, that's, that's it, guys. This is it. There's no hope for us now. But then, plot point number seven. God plays his hand. Paul stood up. By the way, we want to ask three questions. We want to ask, what is this passage saying about God? We want to ask, what is this passage saying about someone who is following God? And let's call him Paul. And we want to ask, what does this passage say about Christianity? What does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about someone who's really following God, doing his best? And then what does this passage say about the nature of Christianity? And so Paul, this is plot point number seven, God plays his hand. Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and this loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. This is word of encouragement, putting courage into them. Take heart, be brave, be strong. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So he's upgraded. Original estimates by Paul were loss of life, loss of things. Now he's upgraded to, oh, just loss of things, but loss of life is now guaranteed. Okay, so there is some good news coming out of this uh, story. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So he was worshiping in this moment. And he said, and this is the angel speaking for God. God said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that is one of the most dramatic verses in the whole Bible. You're in a shipwreck. All hope is gone, and an angel appears to you. And then the prisoner then addresses the people on the boat. It's quite remarkable. That, sorry, Captain, going back to the airline, and I have a message to say to all of you sitting on this airplane. 
And then he says this remarkable story. What does this say about God? Well, here's the obvious. God loves to save people. God loves to save people. God loves to help people. God knows what's going on. God is attentive. God knows every inch of that vehicle, this vessel. God loves the people of the boat. God is a savior. God is a helper. God is sovereign. The winds and the waves and this northeaster and the islands, they all come from him. He is superior and sovereign over all the events of the world. You get man-made crises, you get natural crises, and you get man-made crises which impact nature in a hybrid, which is kind of this one. God is sovereign over all crises. He And he wants to save and help. This is what this passage is saying about God. It also is saying about God that as an extension of this theme of God is sovereign is that God has a plan. He has a plan for Paul. And again, uh, my apologies to those who are here for the first time. We, in the past couple of weeks, have been looking at how God has a plan for Paul to get him to Rome. We don't know exactly why. We can speculate. He wants the most powerful human king, to come face to face with the true king, who is Jesus Christ, who is resurrected. The king who appeared to Paul on the the road to Damascus. We can speculate that God wants the gospel to get to Rome. It's already got to Rome. The church is already happening there. So we don't know exactly why Paul had to be there, but we know he did. We know God had a personalized plan for Paul, and he keeps coming back to it. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He knows you. He knows your life. He knows where he's taking you, what he wants with you, and he's in control, even though things might look radically out of control at the moment when you hit rock bottom or in the total darkness. It's a God who has a perfect, immaculate sense of timing. That's what it says about God. What does this say about Paul? Well, I mean, where were you on the aircraft after 14 days when certain death was facing you and everyone around you was going crazy? Well, there he was, praying, worshiping. And it says, God has granted you the lives of these people. In other words, that's code language for Paul. You've been praying for the other people on this aircraft, and God has heard your prayers. Look, you've got your plan. You will appear before Caesar. That one is clear cut. Don't worry about you. Your life is safe, and that's what gives Paul his security. He's in touch with what God is wanting to do. He's in faith, walking with God. And that's why he can pray and love on these other people and think not of himself in a crisis, but of other people. And he's praying, and then God answers his prayer to save everyone else. What do we learn about God? He he listens to prayer. What do we learn about Paul? He's a man of conviction and of courage and a man of deep worship and deep prayer. He's a man who loves other people. He's not about number one, himself. He loves the people around him. What about you? One of the advantages of a crisis is you can index yourself at how much you are thinking about other people. It gets shown up for what it is in these moments. Okay, plot point number eight, faith arises. So, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And then when God plays his hand, the response is faith. Take heart, have faith, have faith have faith. What does this say about the nature of Christianity? It says when you're dealing with the sovereign God, you always deal with him by faith. He's the one in control with power and sovereign, setting the agenda, and you respond to him in faith. It also tells us a little bit about the nature of faith, that it's a response to what God is saying. 
And so if God wants to save you, maybe you are exploring Christianity and how you can be saved from your sin. Well, he wants to, his word to you is that he wants to save you. It's not coming via an angel, as much as I like to think I am. He, it's, his message is coming to you on the authority of his word is that he wants to save you. And your response is one of faith and to take heart and courage and to believe God's words for what they are. All right, plot point number nine. Faith gets tested. And faith always has a quitting point. You exercise your faith, but then faith gets tested. Because what happens next is this. Uh, Paul says, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night has come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic, about midnight, the sailors, the sailors, not the soldiers, but the sailors, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So Paul has already told them, Paul's ahead of the game, he's dealing supernaturally, they're dealing with natural observation, but then they realize, oh gosh, it sounds like maybe the waves were hitting rocks or something, who knows, it sounds like we're reaching land. So they take some soundings, at first it's 40 meters, then it goes down to about 30 meters, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So there is some evidence of faith in these, uh, in these uh, sailors, they've been persuaded by Paul's message. But their faith is now being tested because they're just in it for themselves. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. And they lowered the ship's boat, remember the lifeboat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So faith gets tested. Uh, the situation is still difficult. God has spoken and intervened. You need to put your faith in Him. But then there's a passage of time where you don't yet have your resolution, but your faith gets tested. It's a quitting point. Are you going to quit on what you think God is saying to you, or are you going to hold firm? These sailors were like, nah, I'm out of here. Self, Self-salvation project, guys. We can just cut the ropes of this thing, get into the water, take this lifeboat, and get first to the island and save ourselves, and these guys are going to die. All right, plot point number 10. When faith gets tested, it needs to be galvanized with a radical decision. So then Paul stands up, and he says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers, not the sailors, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boats and let it go. So they're like, okay, guys, radical decision. No one is getting on the lifeboat. We're all in this together. We're listening to Paul. We are trusting God. Radical decision galvanizes the faith. Then the next thing that happens is after faith arising, faith being tested, faith in being galvanized with a radical decision, what happens next is dawn. You hit rock bottom, you're in darkness, but then the first light of dawn, and this is verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. What does this say about Paul? Well, it says he is a man of real conviction. He really believes his words. He believes what God has told him. And he's prepared to stand in front of them again for an, yet another occasion. He's prepared to tell the soldiers to indicate to them to cut the lifeboat. He's taking total charge. He's strong. He is, he is full of faith. He's full of courage. He's standing firm with God. Uh, he's acting on his conviction. And then the first rays of dawn, rather symbolically, start 
to break through. After Just as they're getting to the beach, God times it perfectly so that the, the storm ends, the danger ends, and the darkness ends all simultaneously. It's quite beautiful. And then the twelfth plot point is Jesus brings words of assurance. I'm going to leave it at about verse uh, 37 and leave it for the next preacher after that. Plot point number 12. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Not a hair of anyone's head is going to perish, says Paul. These, he's quoting Jesus because Jesus talks about loving and securing people and being able to save and to help. He's quoting Jesus. He's reassuring now that they've passed through this journey of faith, he's reassuring them of uh, Jesus' words. And then, again, rather symbolically, verse 36, And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat it. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. There were about 276 people on board. Remember Jesus breaking bread the miracle of the, the fish and the five loaves, uh, giving thanks to the Father and then eating it, and then the miracle just gets multiplied for a whole crowd of people. It's a clear nod or nudge or direction to Jesus, the one who saves, the one who's in power, the one who's in control. He quotes him, and then he demonstrates him once again about the body of Christ, which has been broken for us all. Not that he's doing uh, communion, just to be clear, but it's, it's these deep Christian symbols pointing to Jesus and assuring and comforting uh, these people. And then sure enough, as the story turns out, they, get, they all survive, no one dies, and uh, well, the next installment of the adventure will happen. So there we go. What does it say about God? What does it say about uh, Paul? And what does this say about the Christian faith? Okay, let's change gears and talk about you. If we use this as a template or the anatomy of a shipwreck, which character do you identify with in this whole drama? Maybe you feel like you're one of the prisoners. Maybe you are someone who doesn't have faith in Christ, and you feel like if you had to meet the king of all the earth, it's not going to go well with you. Maybe you identify with that person. Maybe you're Aristarchus, in trouble, but but someone else is also in trouble with you. Maybe you are Luke. Maybe you are supporting someone who's in trouble, but you're just sort of the silent, anonymous observer, witness, but it's tough on you as well, and you're kind of drawn into someone who's close to you drama. I'm not sure. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are the centurion, someone who didn't have faith and then swung into faith, like the soldiers. Maybe you are like the sailors, people who are superficially attracted to faith, but then quit at the first point of having faith tested. I'm not sure where you're at. Which uh, character do you relate most to? Maybe your troubles on your sea of troubles, if let's think of the prisoners for the moment, maybe you are not someone who's put your faith in Christ and repented and turned from your sins. Maybe that's, this is a big picture of you and your journey. Maybe, I don't know where you are on the 12 plot points, maybe you think you're in safety. Maybe you think there's nothing wrong, and you're just innocently heading out. Or maybe there are some winds, and things are getting a little rough, and you kind of sense there's danger, but you just deny it, and then you resort to chance, no reference to God. You resort to your own ability, your own talents, your own bank account, your own status that you've created for yourself to keep you safe. Maybe that's you, and you're in denial of uh, this great God. And you are unaware of the danger. Or maybe something really bad is going on in your life. 
and, 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 you, and you are now making deals with God, and you are throwing cargo overboard, and you're desperate to like, okay, God, if I throw this out my life, will you save me? If I throw the tackle overboard, will you save me? And maybe you're in that state where you're now bargaining with God, but your soul is not at rest. And maybe the winds are family or business or friends or I don't know what the storm is that's going on in your soul. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you've hit rock bottom already. Maybe you're in total darkness. Maybe you're in total crisis. And it's this relationship with God which is in uh, such difficulty. Maybe God has played His hand. Maybe even you just being here at church is a way of God playing His hand and drawing you in and speaking to you. I don't know. Maybe you, you, faith is beginning to arise in your heart, but you don't quite know what to do with it. Maybe you're a new Christian, and uh, you've put your faith in this God who saves, but you're being tested, and you're tempted to quit and give up on this whole Christianity. You want to just get into your lifeboat, sail away, and be done with that, and think about that story another day. Or maybe you're hanging on there, but then the first light of dawn is coming for you. Maybe that's all on a spiritual level. I'm not sure. What about those who are already Christians who are not dealing with their sin or their relationship with God on a fundamental level, not knowing whether they're saved or not? And Christians, to repeat, are those who've put their faith in Christ, the Christ who is God, who came down to earth to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and to ascend for us into heaven, to save our souls from the sea of troubles, which we call the sin and the brokenness of this earth. And maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you're going through some hardships. Or maybe you're watching someone close to you go through hardships. Maybe there's storms in your family and you're trying to figure out your role. Can I encourage you today to look to this God who is great, who is sovereign, who rules the world, who has a plan, who knows what he's doing, who has the ability to play his hand whenever his timing so dictates, who has all power, who is with you, who is close to you, who loves you, who sees you, who observes you, and who wants to help you, whatever your trouble may be. Maybe you need to get comfortable with the fact that you need to run aground. Maybe you're holding on to your boat and your life simultaneously when God is saying, just let the boat crash. Just let the boat crash. The bigger problem has been solved. I love you. You are saved. You are in my kingdom, and I still have future plans for you. Maybe you're holding on to the boat when you should let the boat crash, and you should trust him, and you should walk with him and hold on to him. Maybe you're just feeling you're at rock bottom in some way, and you just need some people to come around you. Can we be like Paul to look out for others who can help those who are at rock bottom? By the way, here's the thing about rock bottom is when you hit rock bottom, is your opportunity to realize that you're standing on the rock. There's an upside to the rock bottom, is that the bottom is Christ the rock, who loves you and who wants to hold you. And you can stand on Him. And if the very least, your worst case scenario, is that you have His eternity of love and blessing and good favor and goodwill towards you. But we sometimes get so obscured from that fact by the ship that's breaking, instead of reveling in the glory of the fact that He saved our souls and that He loves us and His favor is towards us. And He also has another plan leading forward. Maybe you just need some strength. Your faith is being put to the test. You want to get into your own lifeboat. 
I'm not sure. I don't know where you're all at. But the big message today is that God knows, He sees, He cares, He's powerful, and He wants to help. Shall we pray? As we come before this great God today, can I trust you? Can I ask you to trust Him, to reach out for Him? In this moment, this sacred moment now, where He is with us, He has spoken to us, and He wants to say to us that He sees, He knows. Might not be an angel coming to you, but in Jesus Christ, who has died for your sins, the Holy Spirit is always with us to comfort and to encourage and to help. Wherever you might plot yourself on whichever different character at whichever different plot point, when you hear today the words of the Father saying, I love you, I am committed to you, I want to lavish my steadfast love upon you, I want to hold you, I want to secure you. You might be hungry, you might be hungry for God, you might have gone 14 days with no food. He wants to feed you. He wants to satisfy your soul. Maybe you've just been pounded and you're tired and you've been blown all over the Adriatic. He sees you too. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with you on the vessel in the storm. Maybe your faith is being severely tested. Maybe you're watching someone you dearly love who's having their faith severely tested. Won't you lean into the, the love, the great arms of the Father? And if you are not someone who is a Christian, in this moment you can put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You have to repent. You have to admit that the way you are running things is not working, that you're in rebellion against Him. You have to turn have to face him. You have to look him in the eyes. Because you need to hear from him his offer of love, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of kindness and peace. And then you need to reach out and receive it with the arms of faith. If you need some help doing that, why don't you come and speak with me afterwards. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.